In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated. Continuing this morning, uh, through the life of David, which the Old Testament lessons have been taking us through that, and last week, uh, we're surprised by David. We're shocked by David that a man after God's own heart, uh, put it this way, he breaks four of the Ten Commandments in short succession. Uh, Thou shalt not covet, in his case, thy neighbor's wife, the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery, the Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt not lie, the Ninth Commandment. He covers up, he works in deception. And then the biggie, thou shalt do no murder, the Sixth Commandment. We are told in today's Old Testament lesson, unsurprisingly, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sends the prophet Nathan. He sends him. This is God's grace at work. He sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. And Nathan is deft, even artful, in the way that he calls David to repentance. For by way of a parable, appealing to David's sense of justice, justice being the virtue of the God-given love of right, by appealing to David's sense of justice, he puts the sin of David before him. Uh, In the story which Nathan tells David, a rich man who has ample livestock takes from a poor man his only little ewe lamb, in order that he might give it to his guest. Well, as we know, the rich man is David, the poor man is Uriah, and the little female lamb is Bathsheba. But David, not yet realizing that this is indeed a parable, he thinks it's a journalistic account, we got to find this guy. And David not really realizing that this story had been told against him, he's enraged. He says, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. You. Now, David, being a powerful man, he could have so easily, you know, think about the position that he was in, he could have so easily been puffed up with pride and said to Nathan, How dare you speak to me in this way? How dare you do this? Who do you think you are? And he could have launched in a, a sort of Game of Thrones tirade of his accolades. You know, I'm the king of Israel. I'm the Lord's anointed. I'm the slayer of giants. I'm the conqueror of kingdoms. I'm the builder of capital cities. But David humbles himself. And he immediately confesses his sin. 
he quickly begins the process of repentance. That's important. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to the Lord. So, so don't take, because David quickly confesses, because he immediately repents, that's not David trying to move past it. That's not David being like my children who, okay, you hit your sister, say sorry. I'm sorry. They just say it as quick as they can so they can move on with life and get back to playing. David says with sincere sincerity and immediacy and with depth, I have sinned against the Lord. David falls to the lowest depths in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But then very quickly in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he becomes for us again an example. When you sin, do as David did. That is, when, when the Spirit speaks to your heart, the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within us corporately and as individuals, or when, and this is when it's difficult, when the Spirit of God speaks to you through another human being, through a brother or sister in Christ, and says, thou art the man. Do not recoil in pride, but confess from the heart I have sinned against the Lord and turn away from that sin into which you've fallen and turn again to the Lord. It can be hard to do that. But as we mature in our faith in Christ, we actually invite this process. We will, as it were, seek out the prophet Nathan we will pray with David, as in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Repentance is, is turning away from sin and turning to the Lord. It's a 180. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and following, and in Psalm 51, Psalm 51 was written for this occasion. It's, it's David pouring out his heart before the Lord in sorrow and contrition and repentance on account of his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah the Hittite. And what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and in Psalm 51 and really throughout the rest of David's life, we see the genuineness and the depth of his repentance. And we learn what true repentance is. That true repentance necessarily includes contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Namely, as it regards to satisfaction, Intention of amendment of life. 
that there is in practice a, a, a turning away from sin and a turning to the Lord. As to the first, there of course has to be sorrow for sin. Talked about this before. You, you, you know, if you're, yes, I'm a, I rob banks every day, but you don't feel bad about it. You know, you, there's no sort of sorrow and you're just going to keep doing your brazen about it. That, that's, that's not repentance. That's just acknowledgement that something is wrong. There has to be sorrow for sin. It, it, sorrow is, if you will, the precondition for repentance. And, and there's different kinds of sorrows. There, there can be, and they're legitimate, and they can actually lead us to the Lord. There's, there's sorrow over the pain that, that sin has caused us. Sometimes when, when people, as a result of their own uh, sinful choices, when they, when they hit rock bottom, it, it causes them to rethink their lives, to rethink their relationship with the Lord, to realize the error of their ways. There can be sorrow over uh, the consequences that sin has had upon our lives. There can be sorrow in relationship uh, to a fear of judgment, whether temporal judgment or eternal judgment. There can be sorrow over the pain or injury that we've caused others. And these can all be good and legitimate. And the Scripture uses these forms of, of sorrow to turn people to the Lord. But the highest form of sorrow what we can truly call contrition is sorrow for having offended Almighty God and for having contributed in part to the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ and for having grieved the Holy Spirit whereby we are sealed for the day of redemption. It's connecting our sin to the crucified and risen Jesus and realizing that that iniquity is part of the iniquity, iniquity in which the Lord laid upon Jesus, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. F.B. Harton writes this, face to face with Christ crucified, the soul realizes the heinousness of its sin. It is no longer a question of ethical theory. It realizes the cost not of sin, but its own sin to the sacred heart, and it is pierced with sorrow. And it is this sort of sorrow, it is this contrition for having grieved the heart of God. That's what we see in David. He says, against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Of course, he had hurt himself. Of course, he had hurt others, namely Uriah. But David's pain is that he's injured the name of Almighty God. And that he's injured his relationship. He, he, he's interrupted and he's marred his union and fellowship with God. Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. So when David's messed up, it's not just, well, I'm going to get in trouble. Not just sorry that he got caught. His love for God and his relationship with him and his fellowship with him is of such paramount importance that he, he doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize that. And this leads us to confession, the, the second part of repentance. Da- David acknowledges his, his sin. Of course, he says, I, I've sinned. And as we've seen, he does so in a spirit of humility and contrition. And also we see in Psalm 51, this third part of repentance, which is uh, this intention uh, and the carrying out of amendment of life. It's clear that David doesn't want to stay down in the muck and mire of sin. He wants to be redeemed and restored. He wants to have his feet set upon the rock once again. When we talk about satisfaction, it has to do with making amends for the wrong that we've done. It's not just restitution, even though it can include something like Think of Zacchaeus. When he, his life is changed and he transformed, he, he, he restores unto those that he had defrauded. There's a repair for the injury that we've done to God's majesty, to the church, to the world, to our own souls. I think it helps to, to look at it and realize that there's a medicinal side, if you will, There's a medicinal side to forgiveness and repentance in addition to the juridical that, okay, you're forgiven, you're you're released from your sin. When, When we sin, there's damage that has been done and there's a process of healing which needs to take place. Gentlemen, Have you ever been, if you're married, have you ever been on a date with your wife and you're having a wonderful time and then you get into an argument and perhaps you say something that you shouldn't and then you're not really having a wonderful time anymore? This is hypothetical, of course, especially in my case. I've never done any such thing. And then you come to your senses and you ask for forgiveness. Now, even if your wife truly forgives you, okay, the word forgive means to release. She's not going to hold it over your head. She's not going to relate to you in light of that fault. There's going to, the relationship which, which was interrupted by your offense or marred by your offense is going to resume. Yeah, she's not going to bring it up Thanksgiving 2047, Even when that happens, it takes time, doesn't it, for for that relationship to heal. It's a small offense. Still going to take maybe a few minutes, an hour. It takes time for it to turn around. And there also has to be 
on your part if you are the offender, gentlemen. Intention and a carrying out of amendment of life. That you're going to stop doing the thing that you did that was wrong in order for there to be, for the relationship to, as it were, repent, to turn around, for there to be healing and restoration before you're back to having a wonderful time again. And that's the difference between, now thinking way back, I know it's summer, Saul's repentance and David's. Saul, remember when he's seeking to take David's life? And, and David would spare his life. You remember the cave at En Gedi where Saul's going to the bathroom. David cuts off part of his robe and David presents himself. And then later where David sneaks into the camp. Saul, David, my son, I'm sorry. But there was no, cha- there was no intention of amendment of life. I, I love in that passage where Saul's telling David he's sorry, and it's like, mm, okay, Saul. And, and uh, David loved Saul. He was the Lord's anointed. But right after that exchange, the scriptures say, and David said in his heart, I know that one day I'll die by the hand of Saul. There was not godly contrition, and there was no repentance. There was not a turning Away, a definitive turning away from sin to God. So in David, we see this. And brothers and sisters, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's so important to understand that we are by the blood of Jesus absolved from our sins that which interrupted our fellowship with Almighty God is removed and taken away. The eternal consequences are remitted, but there still remains reparation and oftentimes the temporal consequences of our actions. That's what we see in today's text. Nathan declared to David that he had been forgiven. I have no idea why the lectionary stopped right before Nathan (laughs) pronounces David's absolution. That's an important part, actually being forgiven of your sins. Nathan declared to David that he had been forgiven. The Lord hath put away all your sin. And he truly was. But David still suffered the temporal consequences of his actions pronounced by the prophet Nathan. Look back through the text. The, the sword, he says, the sword will not depart from your house. Well, what happens? David's son Amnon, his son Absalom, his son Adonijah, all die by the sword. He, he's, he's disgraced. His son disgraces him by sleeping with one of his concubines out on a rooftop for all Israel to see. And of course, if we keep reading the text, the child conceived in adultery dies. But brothers and sisters, because, just because we suffer the consequences of past sin doesn't mean the Lord hasn't forgiven us. 
David, again, had to deal with the consequences of his actions. But nevertheless, the Lord redeemed and restored David and kept his promises to him. And David heard from the prophet Nathan the best words that anyone can ever hear. The Lord hath put away all your sins. Brothers and sisters, these wonderful gifts of forgiveness and repentance and restoration are available to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, whose precious blood shed on the cross washes us whiter than snow. And you know what? When it comes to the temporal consequences of our actions, God is so good that more times than not, he will use our failures, and he'll even use the consequences of our sinful actions for good in the lives of others. Even if, even if it's just so that, that you can tell a brother and sister in Christ, hey, I've fallen into that pit, watch out. That's what God did with the life of David. That's what God did, to give you another example, with Joseph and his brothers. You remember they, they hated Joseph because he was daddy's favorite. He got the members-only jacket, and they didn't. And they were going to kill him, and then they decided not to kill him, and they threw him in a well, and like, we can make some money off this guy, and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. What happens all those years later when Joseph meets up with his brothers again, and they are torn up over what they've done, and rightly so. And he says, what you intended for evil, God used for good. You see, God sent Joseph ahead of them to provide for them in famine. God sent Joseph so that he might accomplish his purposes for creation and redemption by setting the stage for the exodus. So let us, brothers and sisters, when we sin, it imitate the repentance of David. May we be willing to receive the loving rebukes of Almighty God with humility and respond with swiftness, not letting, not letting fear or shame keep us from like the prodigal son when we've come to our senses, running home into the arms of the Father who will receive us with joy. And may we truly be contrite over our sins, first and foremost, because of the love that we have for God and that we're, such, we're in such loving relationship with him that we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. And that the end of our lives in practice is fellowship and union with Almighty God. And because of our love for him and our zealousness for his name and for his glory, we don't want to do anything that besmirches his majesty. We don't want to, we don't want to be, do anything which would interrupt the sweet fellowship which we have with our creator and redeemer.
May we confess our sins so that we can be forgiven of them. What a gift that is. That there actually is forgiveness and absolution. We're increasingly living in a culture where you made what you said one thing in 1987, you shouldn't have said that. Canceled, gone, and there's no hope of forgiveness or redemption or absolution. And God holds out to his children this gift of confession, of repentance. I mean, confession of forgiveness, of repentance, because it's God by, it's, it's God by the power of his, his Holy Spirit. It's, just, it's simply cooperating with this grace that he, that he turns us more and more away from sin and death and the things of this world around to gaze upon the crucified and risen Jesus and to set our, th- our eyes on things heavenly and eternal. And finally, may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then amend our lives, evermore turning more and more and more towards the Lord, walking before Him in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. Amen.